Right, well, good evening. I'm, uh, I'm starting relatively on time, um, and that's purely because there is so much, as most weeks, to fit in. I am uh, really looking forward to tonight uh, called Law Matters. Um, my specialism in my Old Testament studies is in the law. I have a piece of paper which tells the world, although I'm not convinced that I'm some sort of expert in the law, uh, though sadly they are mentioned in the Bible and not always positively. Tonight though, this is what we're going to be looking at, uh, known as Torah, um, but I have a, a thought I want you to really grab hold of before we get stuck in. An idea that, to be honest, if it's the only thing you take away with you tonight, would still be a good thing. You see, I am convinced that it is possible to read the Bible sinfully. Bear with me. There's a lot of frowns in the room, but bear with me. You see, I think that when we approach that wonderful book with the idea in our heads that this is all about me, that I'm going to find out what this says to me, as our first port of call, I think we've got it all wrong. Because we're putting ourselves on a throne that only God should be sitting on. Now, every part of the Bible puts God first. And it's only then, once we see what it says about God, that we then see what it says about us. We're a much better chance of getting it right, if I'm entirely honest, that way around. You see, in, in, in Genesis, what does it say? In the beginning, God. Uh, in the Shema that we did last week, uh, here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, meaning he is the only one. Uh, even in the wisdom material, we're reminded that wisdom begins with the Lord, uh, more specifically uh, with the fear of the Lord, that is, uh, putting God in his rightful place. That's the beginning. <laughs> and so scripture throughout tells us God first. Now, I tend to find this a particular issue when uh, we turn our minds to the books of the Bible described as the law, that first five books of the Bible. Uh, and we often see it, uh, every part of it, um, you know, and, and we sometimes forget that every single line is primarily about God. And only then our response. That we can imagine, if we get it the wrong way around, we can't imagine that it presents to us a set of rules that we can follow. Perhaps we begin to imagine that there is some set of works by which we can just try hard enough and we can be considered good or righteous or saved. Uh, and we forget. The law is founded on a relationship that already exists. The law is given to a people who already know their Redeemer. There has never been and never will be room for the idea that if we try hard enough or keep enough rules, then we may earn the love of God. So, uh, hopefully, um, though each of the Hebrew classes that I've been doing are standalone, uh, they're not dependent on each other, there is a reason that the one of the law comes after the Shema. Uh, the one that we did last week. Because we need to remember that these commandments, which are about God and then us, these commandments are not divorced from the relationship between Yahweh and his people. If we read the Ten Commandments, that's where we're going to finish tonight, looking very briefly at the Ten Commandments. But if we read them without understanding God first, then us, it's actually very easy to come up simply with a, a list, a rather easy list 
of things to do. And they somehow allow us to work our way to righteousness. And that is not what they're there for. Instead, uh, we are called to love God, Acheb, as it were, the greatest love that we can manage. Uh, and that is only possible because he first loved us. And so tonight, hopefully, we'll see that the law in general and the Ten Commandments specifically, and actually we'll try and have time to look at a couple of those commandments in particular, they help us receive and then in turn show love uh, because every part of the Bible reveals this one we're called to love. So that's like the big idea that lies behind uh, everything that we're going to do. And uh, I have to say, it's very often, uh, it's very common to get all muddled up and, and to think of the law as you know, this list of things, as this list of works that would make you good. And that was never their intention. But before I go any further, uh, our first words uh, will come in just a moment, but I want to ask you a question. Now, I'll give you a couple of minutes to, to talk amongst yourselves uh, on this one. How would you normally understand law? And I notice I've got the capital letter in there. I'm specifically referring to the law as in the Bible, uh, not as in our law necessarily, not as in the police or the constabulary, uh, you know, not the law in that kind of sense, but really specifically law as we would have it in the Bible. So take a couple of minutes, talk to the person beside you or behind you or around you and try and come up with an answer to this one. Thank you. Over to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because you've got a law replaces love obey the rules keep the rules a law that has to be obeyed does not need love you see if obedience is the basis of who we are it doesn't matter if you obey out of fear or some sort of social coercion as in you know peer pressure all that matters is that you obey now, I dare say, a few of us can, can think of churches that embody that a bit too much. You know, it's just, you know, these are the rules, obey, do this, or else you get punished, rather than trying to show God. Uh, now, uh, I should say, the Torah refers to the first five books of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament is known as secondary Torah, or material that would not exist if it wasn't for what was revealed in the first five books. So the history is a lot of the history is called Deuteronomistic history. I can't say that quickly five times. Uh, and basically this idea of what you see in Deuteronomy determines what is written in the history. How do you know if someone's a good king or a bad king? Well, you look to Deuteronomy to find out, essentially. Um, all of the wisdom material is saying, well, okay, we've seen God in the Torah, but we look at the world. How do these two come together? That's the wisdom material, including the Psalms. So quite often you're just shouting out to God questions, you know. Uh, and, and a lot of the other bits, which are really wrestling with, with what's going on. Uh, all of the prophecies are basically saying, well, we know God. Here he is in the Torah. Why are you not living like this? And there's hope for you in the future. You know, it is all based on these first five books. The first five books are fundamental to everything that we believe. Everything. It was in the first few chapters, you've got who God really is, you've got why we wear clothes, you've got marriage, I mean, you've got a whole range of different things just from the outset. And as you go through the first five books, you have God revealed to us. And that means law is not sufficient, if I'm honest. And it's usually because what we think of as law is very different from any concept the Hebrew people would have had. When we think of law, we tend to think 21st century Aberdeen. <laughs> they, they, they weren't thinking 21st century Aberdeen when they thought of Torah. And actually it's quite helpful for us to just let go of law for a minute. Because actually there's a lot of unhelpful connotations actually. And to think of well, what is a Torah? Well first of all, it's got narrative songs, genealogies, poetry, and each and every one of them is just as important as the legal material. There isn't a hierarchy of importance. You see, whilst each statute reveals to us what God thought was important, every action of God, according to the narrative, shows God doing what he thought was important, and they work together. You know, the God that says, you know, do not mistreat certain people, and then there's the God who comes to the rescue of people being mistreated, you think, oh yeah, it goes together. <laughs> and so they are both vital, and actually they need each other. Um, it's not that one is more important than the other. And sometimes I feel that when we say law, it can obscure all the other stuff. And it can certainly obscure the very nature of the one who is behind it. And I think this is really important. Calling it the law, and therefore we automatically go to, we should obey the law, and God is really, you know, this kind of God is really particular about uh, obedience, first and foremost. That kind of obscures the other material and the purpose of why the Torah is given. Now, I'm glad you sat down, because this is my favourite bit. A number of different Jewish groups call the Torah God made flesh. As a Christian, that blew my mind. Right? <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that. I was, I was in Prague 
uh, I was just listening. I was in the listening exercise. Uh, it, it, you know, because then they don't know how little I actually know. And I'm just sitting there, and, and, and the Torah being described as God made flesh. And it's like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm thinking, of course it is. God somehow captured in this human construct a book. God himself being made tangible and knowable like he says. <laughs> the idea of, of, of God himself <coughs> becoming flesh. Now obviously that has got resonance as a Christian. Ultimately I believe that God himself does become flesh. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ as God comes and he, as he lives, interestingly enough, he lives in the exact way that an embodiment of this Torah would live. It's not a surprise, he wrote it. <laughs> He's the inspiration behind it. And every single thing he does points back to this book because it was pointing to him. Blew my mind when I heard that. So, here's a, here's a text that is actually quite pivotal to grasping this idea when we think of God made flesh a Torah and Jesus Christ as God made you know, actual flesh. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, and I think most of the time we've got fulfilling. Now, this is different translations of that, and you're free to look that up. I'm, I'm just going to give you a minute and a half, painfully short amount of time, to look at each other and go, hmm. And then, uh, <laughs> what does this text mean in the context, context of what I've just been saying? What does that text mean? And you could also suggest, what is it sometimes used as? You know, how could it be misused is basically where I'm going with it as well. Okay, so what does it mean and how do you think it might be misappropriated? A minute and a half, guys. Over to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so hopefully you're aware of how painfully short my time is had to answer, you know, a question that might take a, a biblical scholar days, weeks, months, or a lifetime to try and get his head around. So, what does this text mean? But also, maybe you've even heard it yourself. Ways it could be used, but it shouldn't have been used in that way. Misappropriated. So, good use and bad use of this text. What do you think? Yeah, the, the bad use is, is the idea that the law is abolished. You don't have to. We're not under law. We're under grace. Yes. Absolutely. Now, I have heard that. I've heard that many, many times. I mean, uh, maybe why I have no hair left to pull out. <laughs> I mean, I mean, from the context of just this verse, it should never be used to say that Christ has abolished the law. I mean, clearly, you have to ignore what he's saying in order to get... But I've heard it so, so many times. In fact, I'd probably say that's the most common use that I've heard. Oh yeah, well, you know, we live under grace. Pretend that the law itself is not one of the most incredible acts of grace that God's ever done. <laughs> you know, to reveal himself to man in the written word. Spectacular. But oh, no, 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 no. Christ covered all that. No, he didn't. In his own words, he did not. Okay, good. So what does it mean then? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> Always a good answer if it's the truth. <laughs> Does it mean he comes to be it rather than just fulfill it? Perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So it's not just that he's basically you know, alluded to in it or that you know they've been waiting for him to come along, you know, um, although that is true. What he's actually saying, the Greek here, um, uh, pluro, uh, means uh, the embodiment. I am the living, breathing embodiment of all that was written. Brilliant. <laughs> you want to understand a little bit more about Jesus Christ? Go read Leviticus. <laughs> it's known as the Gospel of Moses sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's usually by Old Testament people, to be fair. But, you know, it's actually known as the Gospel of Moses because every single line in there is pointing ultimately to Christ. Uh, you want to understand more about Christ? Well, look at when he comes and talks to Moses. Uh, I mean, you know, look at what he actually does and says and thinks. We get to know what God thinks in the, what we call the law. And, you know, that, that's widest sense. <coughs> And then he comes, and he's no surprise. <laughs> he doesn't do anything really that surprising if you recognise he's going to embody everything that's in there. And this is really important. I, I think for someone like me, who, who, who loves God and loves the Bible, it is so exciting to be able to see him in the text. And to come to every book, I know that sometimes it might be, okay, I don't quite get how that points to him at this moment in time. So I'm going to wrestle with it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep on looking at this, you know. But every single piece of it points to him. And I think it's incredible that in these five books we have the embodiment of God. Just as we have in Jesus Christ. Now I think Jesus Christ is far superior on a whole range of different levels. 
but not least because you actually get to see a human being live it out. <laughs> you know, that's a much more effective thing than just simply having it written down. But there's this unbelievable correlation between the two. And when you realise that, it gives you a sense of joy sometimes when you go to the law. <laughs> you know, you can open up these books and you can think, this is going to tell me more about God. It is my opinion then, notice I paused at that, so you got that bit. Uh, up until there, I'm like, this is just what it means. <laughs> but it is my opinion that the shift from Torah to law, from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English, has been the single biggest shift of them all. And again, I say it's in my opinion, I think it's had the most profound effect on how we view the Old Testament. Because once you've got law, instead of Shema, remember that listening where you take it in because you love God so much, you value him so much, you take his words in, they change you from the inside, and you change and you, you live differently. Instead of that, you have obey. Because it's a law. And in English, it just fits better. And there's other words we're going to look at tonight. That, and we're going to look a little bit more into Torah to really get a feel for it. And we begin to see that I think this is the biggest shift we ever did. And for the most part, I don't think it's particularly helpful. Yeah, we can get some much more obedient people. But I don't think that's what the purpose was. But in order to try and make that case a little bit more strongly, let's actually look at it. Uh, so, uh, sorry, yeah. um, meaning in use, the word Torah occurs 219 times in 213 verses throughout the Old Testament. And now there is no doubt that the people of God were to put into action the things that they read. Um, just because I'm saying it's God made flesh doesn't mean that they didn't then go and do the things that were there. It's just that it was a bit more than just simply the outcome, more than just simply uh, the end product in terms of actions. Well, you know, it wasn't optional. Uh, when God says to shave in a particular way in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 21, it's not an option. I mean, they still did it, but it was always more than the beard. Um, in that one context it says do not shave off the sides of your beard or round the top of your head I am the perfect example <laughs> of what not to look like <laughs> now many of you are thinking well it's not good looking you know. <laughs> but it was a bit more than that God was not really interested in the, in the fashion he was interested in something much more profound and we know that uh, particularly because of where it's put in amongst all the texts that this was in direct contrast to some of the people that they lived near and the Moloch worshipper had this book. And so God is saying, you know what? My people are going to be different because I am the Lord. And remember that that's always in there. For I am the Lord. For I am the Lord. In other words, because I am Yahweh, you're going to be different. You're not going to look like them. You're not going to eat like them. You're not going to dress like them. That means you're not even going to smell like them. You're going to be so utterly different because I am nothing like Moloch. This uh, evil idol where people would murder their children as a sacrifice. God is saying, I am nothing like that. So my people are going to be nothing like that. So the beard wasn't an optional extra. But it was a little bit more than just God thinking what was fashionable at the time. You know? Every line is like that. Every single line is loaded. There's a practical and a spiritual sense in every single line. And for their own good, they would keep, keep it because it had a practical use. 
but there was always more to it because each line pointed to him. But uh, our actions, as we see in the text, were supposed to be inspired by love rather than simply being compelled by obedience. Now, I think that's the key difference between a Torah and a law. Uh, so there's a nice little image of the war, you know. It is genuinely revolutionary. It is genuinely a revolution of an idea uh, where love, the core of who God is, the very definition of his actions towards us, that love is seen to change a person and in turn that person responds to him in love. That's what the text says. It's an idea though, that's very difficult to translate. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very difficult to, to put down on paper in a, in a brief and succinct way. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm going to take you know, a good hour and a half minimum to try and get the, the idea across. But, but let me try and show what I mean in some of the text. Um, Joshua. So Joshua 1.8, here's the ESV. This is what the, the ESV says here. Uh, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Now bear with me. New King James. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and by night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall act wisely. We'll do one more. NIV. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. <coughs> now, obviously we're going to get to another one in a minute. <laughs> the Ian Hepburn version. First of all, let's just, just as a group, what are, the, are there any differences between these three, first of all? Wisely bears you for some good success. It is, isn't it? You know, this idea of acting wisely, and we've got successful and success. Um, kind of worryingly, all three have got this idea of being prosperous. Um, yeah. I think wisely is, is, I think it's quite different, isn't it? Yeah. Um, apart from that, they're similar. There are a few differences in there. Um, by using the word law, we've got some changes coming about. Um, because then you've got to have things like, you know, you've got to do, you know, according to the law. But do you see this almost like this promise from God? Do you see something which actually rather worryingly uh, looks like God is going to guarantee? So how can you, according to this verse, guarantee your success and your prosperity? Do the law. Just do what is written in there. Read it so that you can do, and then do it. And if you do what's in the law, you will be prosperous and successful, or certainly acting wisely. And then I've got kind of a sinking feeling in my gut, thinking that probably doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> well, there's plenty of examples of people who, you know, Abraham was massively rich, Joshua, all these people in the Bible looked after God and did very well. There are some people there are some people in the Bible who do what God wants them to do, although all of those examples was before the law was written down. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, they do essentially what God would want them to do, and they actually turn out to do quite well. Um, because God is gracious, God is merciful, God can bless. Um, that link between doing the law and success was effectively broken in the book of Job. Uh, that was a, an effective means to try and separate out the idea that if you just simply do enough, you get, you know, it's not like an equation, do this and get that. Um, and obviously later books of the prophets in particular, I'm going to point that way. There are some men that do prosper in the Bible. Um, but that's got a lot more to do with the grace and mercy of God than just simply that they've earned enough you know, reward points, as uh, so it were. You know, like some sort of uh, heavenly nectar scheme. You know, it's not quite like that, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and so it is important that we break that link. But the problem is, as soon as you get a law, you then could have like things like obey and do, and then any outcome is because of the doing and obedience. It's a natural consequence. So, try this. This book of the Torah, now, that's quite important, uh, changing from law to Torah. Uh, this book of the Torah shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate. And, and I want to emphasize, that is in all of them, this idea of meditating. But meditate means something. It doesn't just mean read it. It actually means imbibe it and take it within you. Now, I've mentioned that already, haven't I? In other contexts. But this is important. If it's inside you, changing you. Um, uh, meditate on them day and night with the purpose that you would guard them leading to action based upon all that is written but then you will understand the road you run down the, the acting wisely is, is probably more on the button in terms of, of what's actually there now this is a much more literal reading but it's all, at the very beginning it's got rid of the idea of law and once I got rid of the idea of law, I could allow the other words to kind of stand more naturally, to say what they, what they actually say. And so this makes a, a, a real difference. So, all these texts, you meditate on them. And I think meditating on a law and meditating on Torah has a different connotation. Meditating on a law is you're basically trying to memorize it so you know you can get all the rules you know right and get the right answers. If there's an examine it, you can get the right answer to it, you know, that kind of meditating. When you meditate on the Torah, which is God made flesh, when you're actually trying to imbibe this text, when you're actually trying to get the words that reveal God Himself inside of you, that's a different thing. And from there it goes quite different. There is supposed to be an internal process, not just an external knowledge or obedience. We are to remember that it is love over obedience, internal change rather than just simply external observation. Now that is unbelievably consistent in scripture. <laughs> I mean, throughout the Bible, God repeatedly is talking about, I don't want your sacrifices, it's your heart. Which is a bit unfair, if at the outset he says, I don't really care about your heart, just obey and do the sacrifices. <laughs> Um, just, I mean, I could have picked many examples. I'm just, just, just choosing a couple. Uh, Old Testament version, Psalm, uh, I went through verse 6 and data, verse Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Now, this is again, so this is talking about the internal change within a man. Uh, burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That's the, your Torah is within my heart. Contrasted to the obedience in sacrifices. 
Uh, New Testament, uh, we are uh, to love them with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all of the strength and to love one's neighbour as oneself uh, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's a consistent idea throughout. Um, I could cross-reconcile with quite a few other texts, <laughs> um, but this all has a knock-on effect. Okay, so let me just go through this again. So imbibe, uh, that's a really important aspect when we think of the meditate. It means actually more than just simply memorize. It means to, to genuinely put it inside of yourself so that it changes you. So that God himself is changing you. Guard, which is shamar. Now, do you notice it's quite similar to shamar? <laughs> shamar and shamar, uh, which is hear and guard. Uh, both of which are quite often translated as obey. Um, guard um, is can, can be kept. So, see when you said um, go and do or be careful to do. Here it's, it's the idea of, of guarding, protecting. The idea is that the words of God are sacrosanct and there's nothing else that can be put in there with it, that can be added. Uh, actually, most literally, that word means grow a hedge around it. <laughs> you know, delineate it. Say, no, that is the word of God. There, there is, it's not that it is authoritative amongst other forms of authority. Uh, if the word of God says this, and everyone else in the world says something different, this is what I'm going to go with. I'm going to guard the word of God. I'm not going to allow other voices to, to, to have that place. And then we can have action. Now, uh, notice the action again. It's not just simply doing. It's, it's, it's the idea of leading to action. Now, this is important. Um, there's not a huge gap between the idea of leading to action and doing something. Right? There's not a huge gap. <laughs> but there is a rather significant connotation between doing rather than being changed from the inside because that will lead to action. If you say to me, that, I felt it was important to to get that more literal rendering, that idea of, no, 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 there's a change going on within a person and it leads to action rather than simply you've memorized a book and you know what to do, which is how it can be taken. And then the outcome, well, success and prosperity, which, I mean, just for all of us down here, we're thinking, oh, I'm not too sure about that. Well, more literally, it's that idea of living with understanding. Quite often, the, the more poetic, uh, the more... Uh, picturesque language of running down the road or God is a weaver or the whole range of different things uh, will be turned into something much more mundane because it's, it's much uh, easier to be understood and it's, it's less uh, complicated and, and, and less likely therefore to go wrong. And obviously I think most of us understand that the idea of running down the road is, is not that each of us are, are required to run down Union Street uh, but it is talking about your life, you know, the, the road of your life. So the walk, road, it's a very common way in the Old Testament to describe your life. Uh, there's this, this path, road, walk, etc. Very, very common way of describing it. And so this idea is that you're not just kind of tentatively walking down the road, <laughs> as it were, in the dark, you know. Uh, so if, if the lights all fail, most of us are going to rather tentatively walk out of the building. <laughs> You know, um, you know, because you don't want to walk into anything. The idea is that you have this understanding, and so you're not just simply tiptoeing. You are running down the road of your life. Um, it's supposed to give that kind of sense to it. You've got confidence in where your feet are going to land, and, and that's a really beautiful picture. It's actually quite difficult to translate that picture quickly and easily and succinctly and with some mundanity uh, because it's beautiful. <laughs> and I think. 
Once you start changing law to Torah, you free yourself up to allow the text to be a little bit more what it says, rather than leading from law. Because then all the words have to match law. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in actual fact, that's where an awful lot of the joy that we should have just gets sucked right out of us <laughs> when we've got this idea of law. Um, yeah. I think the law changes things, and, and for where we are right now, I don't think it changes things for the better. Uh, now, I should point out, there is legal material in the Torah. That, that's not the issue. Um, uh, there really is. And the people of God would be expected to, to act on these laws. They'd observe the feasts. They would perform the sacrifices. But they were not the end in themselves. They all pointed to God. Uh, these were parts of the relationship that they were supposed to have. Now, let me continue this idea because I feel I still need to do some convincing in the room. So let's just think of the very first instance that the word Torah uh, is used. Now, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, uh, my decrees, and my instructions. This is like the, 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 the first uh, element. Um, literally, uh, instructions is Torah. Um, this is uh, an NIV. So they've recognized the word law doesn't work here. And so they've tried to soften it. And they've started to do this more and more often. The word law is now being changed to things like um, instructions, uh, things that I said, you know, that kind of thing. There is a softening uh, happening among some of the more recent translations. Out of interest, does anyone know why you'd want to avoid putting in that Abraham will be the law? It doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a very good reason for trying to think, hmm, maybe on this occasion, Torah shouldn't be written down as law. It doesn't exist yet. You know, I mean, the law given to Moses, in case you're unsure, Abraham comes before Moses. So the idea that Abraham kept the law is slightly tricky. If you said, because it doesn't exist. So, many of our more modern translations recognize that, and have started to shift the idea of law to maybe instructions. However, that still doesn't quite get it for me. Um, I, I would uh, much prefer uh, that we get that changed to Torah. <coughs> Let's see. So, I just thought I'd pull up the other ones. Um, so the ESV keeps it, uh, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. <coughs> and here, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see, so, so I mean, it is more common just to still see law in there. However, if we change it to Torah, there's a cascade effect. I'm glad you're, you're still with me this one, okay? <laughs> because here's the thing. All of these words are quite legal words because they have to match with law. Because Abraham Shema, and remember that means listen to. Remember we did that we did that last week. I realised, but remember Shema doesn't mean obey; it means to listen and to imbibe and have you changed from the inside. So what you go and do is different. But you can't translate that, so you write obey because <laughs> that's like the outcome. If you know what I mean, that's where you end up. You do what God said. Um, so, because Abraham listened, he valued me and listened and was changed by my voice. Well, he guarded and watched over, remember the, the, the shamar, the guarding, watched over my commandments, mitzvah, my customs, chok, and my Torah. 
That's different. That's actually very different. This is all about the value that Abraham had towards God, not just the fact that he was a very obedient man and therefore God blessed him. Sorry, how, how does that mean that he didn't have the Torah either then? So how can you use the word? Good. So I'm saying that the Torah is much bigger. The Torah is God made flesh. And we actually have a number of examples in the Old Testament where the Torah doesn't refer to the first five books of the Bible either in their entirety or it actually means God being revealed. So essentially in this context it means that all the things that he was told to do, the commandments, the customs, the way he should live with him, and everything that was revealed about God to him was guarded and listened to. Um, which makes a lot more sense than him keeping the Ten Commandments before, they, before they're written down. Uh, we can also forget too that the book of Job was actually written long before Moses uh, and in chapter 22 Job was told by uh, Eliphaz receive I pray you the Torah from his mouth and lay up his words in your lavar remember your, 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 your being sometimes you translate it as heart this is before the law is written down but it's the idea of you know, receive what God re- reveals about himself God made flesh to you from his own mouth and you store that up so it has to have that wider sense. Well, these texts make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> you know? So. What's this? Uh, sorry. Yes. Would a Jewish Hebrew or whatever understand what you're saying? Or are you just redefining the, the word as how you think? it should be rather than sure. a proper definition. No, good, good, good question. So, essentially, is this just me going off on a tangent? Yeah. <laughs> or does this have any basis with anybody else uh, as a word? So, there's a number of answers to that. <laughs> um, now, I was, I was in a privileged position, as I said, I did my PhD on this, and therefore I did get to mix with lots of different groups of people. Some of them would not recognise what I'm saying. Some would. Um, groups and Prague and Morocco in particular, some of the Jewish groups there would very much recognize this. Would the Pharisees have recognized this? No. Not at all. Uh, uh, they go off the reservation. Uh, they very much become legalistic, very much like in the Greek mold. They do decide they're going to go with law, and they, they pursue that. Paul, very interestingly, um, has this interesting uh, relationship. He seems to love the Torah, but he hates law. He hates what it's becoming. There's a tension in, in Paul. And you can recognize that. He does seem to love the Torah, the God-made flesh, but he does not love the law. He hates the law. And, and it's a very good distinction, actually, to keep in our minds when we read Paul, that there's something in between you. Uh, Jacob Neuser, he's a Jewish scholar, was the first person to put in writing in English the idea of God-made flesh. And he did that long before I was born. Um, I can't claim credit, I'm afraid. Um, However, the most important thing is, uh, how is it used in the Bible? How is it described in the Bible? I mean, all very well, all these different groups maybe say it or maybe agree with me. Largely, it doesn't matter. What does the Bible say about itself? Well, if, if we think about it in that kind of sense, well, we've got the Torah, which is a source of delight. Again, kind of strange for Allah. Uh, his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh, and in his Torah he meditates, that is, imbibes it, takes it deep inside, day and night. It resides in the Lavav, and the, the Mayor, the, the um, 
I suppose that's closer to, to heart, I guess. Uh, the Torah of God is in his levav. None of his steps shall slide. Uh, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Indeed, the Torah is, is, is within my heart. Uh, it is a thing that we are supposed to love with, uh, with the greatest, most intense form of love. Uh, it is uh, the way that is described in the relationship to the Torah. I mean, Psalm 119 is a good place. It's a Torah psalm. And we are to understand that this is a form of the greatest delight because it leads us to God. We see God. It is the revelation of God. And if you don't like the definition of God made flesh, however you want to define Torah, it has to be this idea that it is revealing God himself and the way in which we can have a relationship with that God. Because that's how it's used every single time. That's just how the Bible describes itself. Um, I quite like how Ezra and Nehemiah use it. Um, I can always send you a copy of, of my PhD on that one, um, but uh, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> um, the way that they're using it, it's, it's interesting. A lot of scholars used to find Ezra really difficult, but they think, well, he's not using it right. He's not using it as a law. And they kind of pause for a minute and go, mm, yeah, no. <laughs> he's using it as something much bigger than that. And a lot of the real difficulties that scholars have had is because a lot of them have had this idea of Torah law. I think it was week one uh, I used Psalm 19, but it, it bears uh, use again here. Psalm 19 is a really interesting song. So it's a Torah psalm. That's, how, that's the, the, the type of psalm it is. And so the opening six verses talk about how there is a God. You use El, uh, that, that generic term, you know, God. The, the term that was used by all the nations all around. And the idea is that creation can tell us that there is a God. But then, after that rather beautiful and yet bleak and terrible ending, <laughs> you know, there is a God, good luck with that, you know, essentially. Into that, we have verse 7, this incredible ray of light. The Torah of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. And the key element to this is the fact that once you get the Torah, you get Yahweh. Once you open up the, the, the Bible, you get to know a person. You get to have a relationship. And so the whole purpose of the Torah is that relationship. is to reveal God. As I said, God made flesh. That's its purpose. Now when we come to it like that, it's actually a very different reading experience, so bear with me. When you come to it, you think, this is about God first. This reveals God. This tells us about God. Not, this is telling me how to you know, do X, Y, and Z, how to shave in the morning, or how to wash. And so you read it slightly differently. And it means that, I mean, some groups of Christians, for example, say, well, you know, there's different types of law. There's the bits we keep and the bits we don't. And we come up with lots of fancy titles for that. Uh, there's uh, moral law, there's ceremonial law, there's civil law. There's a whole lot of different acrobatic things which are not mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> to basically say, well, there's some bits of law we don't really we don't follow, and there's some bits we do. We'll keep the Ten Commandments, we'll give it the shaving and the washing, you know. But when you actually understand this is God made flesh, you open up every single text and say, what does this say about God? Why does he care about that? Why does he want that done? What does this reveal about him? God first. And when we do that, it's a very different reading experience. You know, most Christians who probably you know, won't open up Leviticus suddenly think, well, you know, even if we don't get all of it, I'm going to open this book up and try and see what it says about God. It's a very different reading experience. We recognize that as far as the Bible was concerned, the Torah was not about a law that you did. 
It was about a person you would know. It's not my fault. <laughs> you know? it's, just, it's just what the text says. And so uh, from there, there are some effects that I think you should be um, aware of. Let me just um, push up with Jeremiah up here. Um, as I said, the purpose of the Torah is to know God. Not just simply obey God, and then we can get rid of that when God gets a better idea later on. It's the idea of, of this, that they should have the Torah of the heart. We should imbibe this, and our hearts should be changed by God. And then what we go and do is different. It matches with all the other ideas. Uh, but this is, shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, Yahweh, I'll put my Torah inside of them uh, and write it in their hearts. Les, the, the, you know, being, excuse me, and will be their God of gods, and they shall be my people. This has always been the intention of God. Uh, to have people who have this revelation of who he is put inside of themselves so that they are changed. Now, it's a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit within us to actually see that change. But this is not like a, like a new idea. This is not like a, or it's not even an idea that God had uh, in the New Testament. It's not just an idea that God has by the end of the Old Testament once he's tried out the law and thought, well, that didn't work, let's try again. From the outset, it was about changing men, about a relationship and about love. The law that was given, you know, even all the legal stuff, was given within the relationship. They were already the people of God. They didn't have to obey it in order to become the people of God. And we forget these sorts of things. So it is to know God. That is its purpose. And whilst there were, there were plenty of practical outcomes, like don't eat shellfish, uh, pre-refrigeration in a desert miles away from the sea. <laughs> There's a practical reason behind that, and one that I would heartily recommend. There's also a spiritual thing. Um, all of the creatures that ate other creatures, and particularly things like bottom feeders which feasted on death, were excluded from the diet because you're not allowed to eat things that were tainted by death. Because you are a people of the author of life. And the whole clean-unclean uh, divide is all about death and life. So there's a spiritual component as well as, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and yeah, you know what? A lot of the practical stuff, as we've moved on, has changed. Um, I, I no longer fear eating a lobster. Well, it depends who's cooked it, I guess. Uh, but, you know, I, I shouldn't have a fear of eating that. But I should still see God behind the edicts. Um, but the problem is, once you start tinkering around with law and make it Torah, some of the other words get shifted to, to match. Because once you've got law and do and obey and statutes and commandments, there are actually commandments, to be fair. <laughs> but, you know, from the other words, they, you know, they, 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 they have to match. And once you start messing around with one of them, and it's a pretty integral one, <laughs> the law of the Torah, much bigger, the other words can be allowed to speak more loudly. So, for example, uh, statute, uh, chok. Now, how do you normally understand a statute? A law. <laughs> yes, a law. And I will go with that. Yes, absolutely. You see, the problem is we have to try and make it fit. 
Would you say that a statute is different from a custom? Yeah. 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 How would you define a custom? Something that's usually done, but it's not required. Yes, good. Uh, I remember, I, I used to lecture on this, and I remember one of my students when I asked the definition, I, I love this. She said, the custom, that's when you turn around and say, that's not how we do things in my house. <laughs> Brilliant, you know. Now, why does this matter? A custom is still a very powerful term. You know, it, it, it does affect what we do, although the value judgment does differ. The importance of the custom is based on the one who has made it. So when I go home to my mother's house, I may conduct myself in a different manner, shoes off at the door, because I respect the person. A statute, you obey irregardless. It has authority in its own right. It doesn't have that value of the person necessarily behind it. It just has maybe some sort of power or authority behind it, if you see what I mean. And that's actually quite a big shift. Custom is still powerful. <laughs> and I'll be entirely honest, I'm much more likely to obey my mum's customs than the law of the land. <laughs> you know? They can be powerful, but they are relational. And I think, I think when we put in statute instead of custom, we are sacrificing that relational aspect that should have been in there. We do it because we love them. And, and I think Hoke should still have that powerful but relational uh, aspect to it. Now, uh, Hoke, um, I mean, all these things that I'm saying, I'm, I'm trying to show you in use, I'm trying to show you in the text. I mean, it occurs 127 times, and every single time, uh, a custom rather than a law is clearly what is intended. Um, many examples, but... Um, so the, the, the sourcing of drinkable water in Exodus 15.25, it's not a statute that we are supposed to forever follow. It is a custom. It's not the law, but rather this is a thing that should be done, if you see what I mean. Um, it is subordinate, I guess, to a law. You know, a law is kind of absolute. Um, custom, not so much. Um, Job, uh, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my hook of food. Uh, so my, the customs surrounding my food. Um, they can be a binding thing acted on for generations, but they are not written in the law. This is one of the key texts to, to make this point. Uh, Exodus 30 and Leviticus 6, uh, they have the law and then they talk about customs as a, as a separate thing. Uh, Hawk is also described as a boundary, something on the edge of a substance. Uh, he has inscribed a circle in the face of the waters at the hook between light and darkness. All of which means that these statutes, as we often describe them, should not be thought of as legal material, but customs originating from suitable behaviours. Uh, they are at the edge, as it were. They're slightly beyond what was required and become something that is maybe wise to do. Now, we have many, many, many church customs. <laughs> uh, all of us, no matter where we come from, will have uh, many church customs. They are not at the same level as the Word of God. Uh, law and customs are two very different things. They are not to be held on to too tightly that they can never be changed. Now, nearly all of the church customs that we have came about for good reasons. 
Lisa historically, there was a reason behind the custom, and it made a lot of sense. It was a good thing to do. And if you fast forward, and it depends how long the church has been there, 5, 10, 100, 1,000 years, we find sometimes that the context has changed and the custom is actually now unhelpful. That's not the word of God. And so even in our own lives, we need to be aware of what is a custom and what is the word of God. Word of God, non-negotiable. <laughs> our own preferences and comforts and customs, entirely negotiable. <laughs> and so even for us, there has to be an awareness of the difference between a hope and the Torah. And hopefully they, they kind of join together and they're, they're both a, a useful package. But not always. Um, they do not have hegemony over us in the same way as the Word of God should have. Uh, but it's interesting to see that it's in the Old Testament as well, and not just a, a, a problem we have for today. <laughs> um, next word. Uh, debar. Now. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I've got about 29 minutes, so... Commandment uh, is the word mitzvah. Okay, so the, this is a perfectly good word for commandment, mitzvah. It's, it's, it's there, and God does issue commandments, you better do them. <laughs> you know, they are absolute, they're non-negotiable. Uh, and actually, fact, um, a mitzvah is very often said alongside a hook, uh, like these two different kind of extremes. You've got my mitzvahs, you know, and then there are the customs. Uh, and so it's kind of like an all-encompassing uh, <laughs> jewel, if you know what I mean. Uh, trying to encompass uh, all uh, uh, there and in between. Um, mitzvah is also grounded in the heart, though. So again, we, we can't allow the idea of God giving the commandment to simply be you know, some sort of external um, obedience. Um, the mitzvah, this is Deuteronomy 10, um, it's, it's really interesting. In Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, we see the right order of things. So, what do we do first? We're supposed to fear God. Comes first. Now, two different types of fear. There's the fear that makes you run away in terror, and there's the fear that makes you bow the knee. Uh, this is the latter. This is when you recognize God as the one on the throne. This is when you say he is actually God. No one and nothing else can be allowed to sit on that throne. That is the fear of God. In the beginning, God. Immediately after that, we have this idea of, well, once you've actually got me in this rightful place, and you understand the relationship, it's not an equal relationship... <laughs> Once you understand that, once you've grasped that and recognised that, love is the very definition of the relationship that is to flow from that moment. And then you serve him with all of your lavav and all of your nefesh. I believe we covered that last week. <laughs> love him with everything you are. Uh, serve him with everything you are. You then guard all of his mitzvahs. You make sure that no one else is able to maybe add a line here or take away a word there. You guard them. They are perfect as they are. And then you guard his customs. And that's the, the kind of the order of things as outlined in Deuteronomy 10. Now very often we get the wrong way around. We think that maybe if we obey enough commandments, God might love me. <laughs> There's already a relationship. There is already love. There was already God in his rightful place long before we get to the commandments. And when it comes to the commandments, we're supposed to guard them. Yes, we'd go and do. Yes, it would change how we live. Yes, it should guide how we think. But we protect them. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Ten Commandments, possibly the most famous commandments, 
It's not just me thinking that, surely. Uh, the Ten Commandments are surely the most famous commandments in the Bible, yes? One problem, they're not actually mitzvah, which are commandments, they're actually debar. Well, debarim, the plural of debar. And this is a whole roller coaster that I'm so delighted to unleash upon you tonight. Uh, they are not commandments. Um, before I go any further, let me just explain what debar really is. Debar is an incredibly common word, so we can get a very good understanding of it. Used 1,438 times in every single use. In all 1,438 times, it refers to something which is spoken, a word, or it refers to a thing. So in other words, words spoken by God or man, I, I don't have enough room on the slide to incorporate all of them, I'm sure you'll appreciate it, it's just a, a brief selection of some. Uh, and it can refer to things such as a birth, a plague, wages, good deeds or bad deeds. Really can kind of refer to almost anything, much as we use that word in English. So that's what that means. So when we come to our Ten Commandments, it's not literally ten words, so very often we say the ten things. It's the ten things. Um, and uh, obviously it's repeated twice, it's incredibly important. Uh, if anything in the Bible is there twice, it's not because the author has forgotten he's written about it the first time. It's for, for emphasis to say how important it is. As an aside, little point, some of you may well have, uh, remember Charlton Heston holding the Ten Commandments, or some other sort of film or cartoon, and very often there's these sort of shape, these sort of tombstone stones, which uh, is an incredible amount of labour, uh, actually, and was not how the Ten Commandments would have been kept. Uh, likely they would have been on, on cuboids, so that you could actually write on four sides. It was a much more effective way of, of doing things, much easier to carry. Also, it was very likely that all Ten Commandments were written out twice. So the two stones, it's not like, you know, five and five. It's, it's ten and the same ten. Um, that was the most common way of, of doing all of these sorts of things uh, back then. Uh, usually one copy of, the, of, the, of the, the, the rules and laws and ideas and agreements would stay with one party and one would go with the other party, hence why there's always two uh, of them, but both are put into the Ark of the Covenant. That's just random aside stuff because it kind of bears the picture. Uh, <laughs> you know. Anyway, back to my uh, commandments, uh, as it were. Um, <laughs> uh, so, ten commandments. First thing to point out, um, there are ten of them, ten things, and we know that from Exodus 34. Uh, so he was there with the Ark for 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten divarim. Now this really, really matters. Now, I realise at this moment in time I'm the only one really excited, mostly I've written the a mixture of dread uh, and confusion. But bear with me because this really, really matters. When it's ten things instead of ten commandments, it radically alters the whole thing. It radically alters how we read them, how we apply them. So everything really tonight has been in the build-up to this moment. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, wake yourself up, uh, <laughs> take some big breaths, um, because... There aren't ten commandments. 
And you're going, yeah, I know I was listening, there's ten things, good. <laughs> there are ten things, but there's not ten commandments. And the problem is there are essentially nine commandments and an introduction. Now for the Jews, that's not a problem, because it's the ten things. For both Protestants and Catholics, this has caused us incredible difficulty, because we're desperate to make ten commandments out of nine commandments. So, it gets a bit complicated, bear with me. Uh, this is, is included in the, in the handout uh, as well. The Protestants, uh, except for the Lutherans, they, they kind of go with the Catholics on this one. Uh, we are keen to keep Ten Commandments, understandably, so we split the first commandment into two. So when it says, have no other gods, no, seriously have no other gods, we turn that into two different commandments. Um, you know, so the graven images and the, the, the gods are split as if they were two different commandments. Now the Catholics look at us and think, well, that's just mental. Why would you do that? They're clearly one commandment. But then they get to the end, and they've only got nine left. So they write coveting. We'll split the coveting up into two. So coveting the wife, that's like a whole commandment. Coveting your stuff, separate commandment. And of course we then look at the cast and say, you're mental. That's, that's clearly not how it works. And the Jews are standing there going, what is wrong with you? <laughs> there is uh, an introduction and nine commandments. Um, and, and this is vital for understanding how we're supposed to read them. The Hebrew does talk of the ten things, but you have the nine commandments, as it were, under an introduction which is essentially telling you, I am Yahweh. I redeemed you. It talks about who he is and what the relationship is. And we're supposed to understand that this introduction gets applied to each of the commandments the whole way through. Just like in Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, we say, don't do this, for I am the Lord. Don't do this, for I am the Lord. Do this, for I am the Lord. Similarly, Ten Commandments, and bear in mind the Ten Commandments are actually rewritten into Leviticus 19. There's a whole chapter about the Ten Commandments, just writ large. Here, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, is read with each of the commandments. And this makes a rather big difference. Instead of Ten Commandments, a list, and it's actually, let's be honest, it's not a difficult list. Again, okay, uh, I mean, Susan says, do not kill. Tell me that's not difficult. You know, you don't get home every night and you phew, managed to make it tonight. <laughs> didn't kill anybody. I mean, he went on about the law, but I didn't kill him, you know. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty low bar. Do not commit adultery. I mean, really? That is a low bar. Now, it's a low bar because that's what human beings are. If I'm honest. Uh, but I don't have like a board at home, you know, so many days since my last adulterous experience. You know, I mean, it's not like, phew, made it home tonight. You know, it, it's a really low bar. Because that's what we're like. But that's not the full story. That's if we read it as Ten Commandments. When we read it as an introduction and nine commandments, you see that it says, Do not kill, for I am Yahweh. Do not kill, I am the author of life. Do not kill, that's your bit. I invented life. You should actually have not just an ethic of not killing, you should have an ethic of life. It's not enough to simply to not kill. There's something about valuing life. Uh, do not commit adultery. Low bar. That's where you're at. But that's not enough. Because I am Yahweh. Because I invented marriage. And this is what it's supposed to be. That's 
that's the effect of having the nine commandments of introduction. You see both the negative where the human being resides and the positive because he is Yahweh. In the beginning, God. Remember, we're supposed to see what does it say about God? Not just, oh well, it says not to kill. That's enough. And that's what it says to me. It's not enough. Do you see the difference in having an introduction of nine commandments as opposed to having just a list of ten things that will make you a good person? It's not enough. And each of them is much, much, much bigger than we normally uh, recognise. Uh, just to help you, uh, I think I've, I've put this in the handout as well. I've broken down, therefore, because I do have a lot of sympathy with the Jewish model, as you can uh, appreciate. I've broken down what the Ten Commandments looks like, if you think of it as the introduction uh, with nine commandments. Okay. Um, and verse 2. Um, I am Yahweh, your God of gods, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's, it's incredible, you know, the relationship and who he is. It's all spelled out. The fact that he's already been a redeemer for these people, already there. And then we get to move into some of the other things, which tell us all about him. Um, and then, yeah, when we do this, we'd keep the list. We'd, <laughs> you know, not kill, but because it's something bigger than that. And we are supposed to live lives that reflect him, ultimately. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually wish I had enough time to go through all Ten Commandments now. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's only an extra two, two three hours. You know. um, maybe at some future point we'll do a whole class just on the Ten Commandments or the Nine Commandments and the, the introduction. Uh, for now, let me just do a couple, and it will be quite brief, but with that idea behind it. Uh, so, uh, do not ratzach. Um, Kill. Yeah. This is a fairly straightforward commandment. Do not kill. Although I do recognise uh, that some of our more uh, contemporary translations will go for you, know, you shall not murder. Uh, just out of interest, is there a difference between do not kill and do not murder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, murder is quite specific. Kill is, is quite, actually, really broad. And to be fair, Ratzach is probably somewhere in between the two. Kill is too broad. I mean, they did have, uh, well, they would kill animals, so let's just get that out of the way, first of all. Uh, you know, the sacrificial system, there was warfare, there was capital punishment. Each of those is, is a whole night in itself to discuss. <laughs> but they did have all these things. Um, but murder is very precise, it's much more narrow, and it's too narrow uh, for uh, what is intended by the Ten Commandments in Ratzach. Um, so I think kill overreaches and murder sells it short but they're the only words we have <laughs> so we just kind of choose in between the two uh, Ratzach um, can actually be uh, a lot broader um, what we'll be talking about here is that it's used 14 times in Numbers 35 you know the context of the city of refuge where someone guilty of Ratzach well, they could flee and they could have a fair trial. And yes, the Hebrew people did invent jury trials and open prisons. Through him. Um, but the idea here is that uh, in the ancient Near East, if you had spilled blood, your blood would be um, you know, uh, called for and you would expect to be killed, usually by the family of the person that you have killed. Even if you didn't mean to kill the person, your blood would still be the, you know, available to the hand of what's called the blood avenger. 
Um, however, in Israel, the killer could flee to a city of refuge uh, where an independent jury uh, would sit in judgment on the case, the community. Uh, at this point, there were two possible outcomes, although it had to be a unanimous decision um, in order for uh, the death penalty to be ensued, uh, which actually in practice would have made it much less common. If you could just hand it over to an executioner, it's easy. Now, a lot of people sometimes wonder why was stoning the, 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 the method chosen? Why not something a little bit more humane? Well, stoning uh, usually meant that an awful lot less people were executed because every single person not only had to agree with the decision, but they had to take part as well. Um, which in effect meant a, a lower conviction rate, I guess you could say. You know? Or at least the, the lesser sentence would be done. Because there's only two outcomes. If you're in that trial, there are two outcomes. You're guilty, death penalty. You have murdered someone on purpose. You're guilty of an intentional, premeditated act. And the death penalty was required. Or you're guilty of an accidental killing. And this was the first group of people to have legally written down the idea of manslaughter. You killed him, but you didn't mean to. And that's incredibly serious. You will face life imprisonment in an open prison, in a city of refuge. You can't leave that city, but you can live there. You can have a job, you can have a family, you can continue, but you are there in this open prison. Uh, the deliberate version, uh, Ratzach, have been struck with a metal implement, been struck with a stone, struck with a wooden implement, struck with fists, struck out of hatred, and very specifically via a planned premeditated killing. They try and cover as many uh, notions in, uh, as possible. Each of these uh, uh, you know, received the death penalty. If it could be proven, if, if the whole jury agreed, and if the whole jury were willing to take part. <coughs> oh, sorry. thought there was one more. Um, Ratzach. Uh, Ratzach elsewhere um, will cover both eventualities, both the premeditated killing and the accidental killing. Uh, we also get it in things like um, uh, Abraham's killing of, of Naboth uh, in 1 Kings 21 verse 19. Um, it talks about the murder of the innocent in Job 24, Psalm 62. Um, and so it does usually mean the illegal killing uh, or illegal taking of life. You know, so it's not it wasn't intended to cover war, it wasn't intended to cover the death penalty, because these guys weren't then guilty. Uh, you know, it was clearly seen as um, it was something with what had been allowed. Now, I find that very difficult when it comes to application for us, because um, if our society says that certain types of killing are okay, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's fitting into the Ten Commandments, if you see what I mean. But for here, Ratzach uh, usually means uh, a killing that should not have been done. That's what that means. However, and here's the big thing, you need to point it back to the big picture again. It's not enough to not kill, it's about having an ethic of life. God invented life. The reason this is so serious is because God invented life. And it's not just simply enough of, okay, I'll, I'll try not to kill. It's actually, how do we promote life? It, it, it's a different thing. And, you know, books like Numbers and Leviticus will outline some of the consequences in society of what it means. But it's, it's always meant more than just don't do. Here's, here's my favourite one, though. You shall not covet. Now, what does it mean to covet? <laughs> Want something that's not yours? 
Thank you. Yeah. To want something uh, that is not yours. Um, nope. Um, the English uh, to covet is usually understood to desire, want, crave, or lust after something you don't own. Now, it doesn't say covet, and to be fair, we never use the word covet unless we use the Ten Commandments, if, you know, usually. Um, I, I can't remember the last time someone used that word out with a Ten Commandment context. Uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean, or you know, certainly a biblical context. If you go in the street and ask what does covet mean, I'd be surprised if most people could even tell you. Um, but it doesn't say covet, it says chamad. Now, bear with me. Uh, the English word uh, covet is fair enough, um, but the Hebrew people already had a word for covet, ta'ava, um, but before they satisfied their craving, ta'ava, everything, while the food was still in their mouth. Uh, Proverbs, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. You know, the idea of, of coveting, uh, uh, as it were. And that's already covered in the Hebrew word, as I said, uh, ta'ava. Chamad, though. Uh, occurs 30 times, and it has both a positive and a negative sense. I don't think coveting ever has a positive. You, know, you just can you choose a different word, I think, for the positive. Uh, but positive, usually uh, to describe a beautiful or good quality, um, um, which you, know, you can enjoy, uh, as it were, usually, usually through the eyes. Um, so, um, Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim uh, made to spring up uh, every tree that is um, chamad to the eyes. Uh, and it was good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the idea, therefore, is that all these things are incredibly beautiful and you are to take them with your eyes, as it were. But that's their purpose. And so, therefore, it's a positive thing, if that makes sense. Kind of odd that the idea of coveting being positive, but you know, chamad is a little bit more than coveting, as you'll appreciate with most of these words. And so you get this positive sense of being able to enjoy, nearly always visually, something that has been made beautiful, because you are taking it with the eyes, but for the purpose that it was designed. Of course, we also have a negative sense, uh, something that is wanted and used. Uh, now, there are many examples. Let me just this one though, Exodus 34, 24, but I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one will, I mean, you always write, covet your land uh, when you go to appear for Yahweh, your God of gods, three times in the year. So when the people were going off to Jerusalem, um, uh, they are told not to worry about other people chamading their land. The verse is to give them uh, surety. It is to say that nothing bad is going to happen when you abandon your land to come to the festival in Jerusalem. Now, there are a variety of meanings possible here, but covet really isn't one of them. If you're leaving your land to go to Jerusalem, which may be many miles away, and it may take many days to go there and back and to enjoy the feast, you're not really that worried about somebody walking by going, oh, I wish I had that land. That's not really on your radar. You're not really thinking, you know, someone's going to go by thinking, mm, that's really nice, I wish I had that. That's clearly not what is going on in the text. Uh, the, there is, however, something about their temporary absence which makes that land far more desirable. They are much more likely to be concerned with somebody squatting in their land or taking or using their land in some way whilst they're away. 
And that matches every single use of the word hamad, the idea of taking or using something which is not yours. Now, that's the, the, the negative one. Now, this is different from stealing. So if I was to steal something, I then make it, as it were, my own, and I am responsible with it. I look after it. You know, if I steal a donkey, I then feed that donkey and water that donkey. I don't know, whatever you have to do, look out, call a vet, check it as a donkey, I don't know. Uh, but whatever you have to do, you know, to then, because it is now yours, that would be stealing. To Hamad is to take and use up and discard. It's a very different thing. Um, the Exodus text, as I said, is, 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 is uh, really warning about squatters. But then when it comes to the Ten Commandments, there's some really ominous meaning there which includes the animal welfare and the rather disturbing do not just simply take and use and discard somebody else's wife. Now, oddly enough, there is a biblical example of that, um, uh, David and Bathsheba. Um, uh, wanting and taking um, would, be, would be more like it. Uh, Second Samuel chapter 11 then. The problem is not just the lust of the king. It's not just that he covets her. It's not just that he thinks, oh, that would be nice. That's not the problem. That's the start of the problem. <laughs> you know, in the heart, that's where the st- it all starts. But it's not just desire over a beautiful woman. This is a really good example of Hamad in action. He uses her. And with scant consideration, then discards her, sends her back home. Um, he has no consideration over her well-being. Uh, he uses her while her husband is away. He casts her aside, imagining that when the husband comes home, he's going to end up being none the wiser. Uh, now, that is different from stealing a man's wife under some misguided notion of, well, I love her or, or something. It's a different thing. You know, running off with somebody into the sunset, etc., is a different thing than what David does here. If he had stolen her from the outset, he would have taken and kept, but said he chamad. He uses her, discards her. And it's only when the consequences of that action uh, come to light uh, that he then goes further, uh, murder and, and eventually marrying her. See, I love all that kind of stuff, when Hebrew ends up telling you an awful lot more I, I do, I love all that. But the key thing with the, with the commandments and the key thing about the Torah and the key thing about the customs and everything else is that underpinning all of it is this relationship. It is never to be divorced from this relationship. You want to understand what the Torah is, however you want to kind of describe it. The problem is that when we say law, it almost exists almost without God. You may have written it, but you just obey it. <coughs> As a Torah, it is supposed to be something that is inside of you. It is supposed to be this revelation of God and it inspires you to be better, to be different. When it comes to customs, it's because you value him and the relationship that you would go and do such things. When it comes to Ten Commandments, remember, it starts off with whom? God. In the beginning, God. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God. And so the whole way through the commandments, they're all different. And yeah, you know, I can, I can look at these and say, well, actually, you know, you can get a little bit more out of it in Hebrew, you can get a little bit more meaning out of it, because that is generally the rule of thumb, <laughs> to be entirely honest. But the big thing, the biggest thing out of all of this, is that every single piece of this text is about God first. 
It's about the relationship that he intends to have with us, as mind-blowing as that is. And from that point, we are able to reciprocate because we read these books, we imbibe what it says, we imbibe this revelation of who he is, we take him inside of us. And the Holy Spirit inside of us is perfectly able and willing to change us and transform us to be more and more like him. Now, I have two minutes left to appear on the clock, so... Now, I've been saving this. I have a favourite illustration to try and describe the Christian life. It's my favourite one, so if you know me at all, you will have heard this at least once, but I think it is worth repeating again, because it's my favourite, and I'm biased and I'm in charge just now, so I'm going to go with it, alright? Now, you know, hopefully you'll smile when you, when you recognise the opening line. So, I didn't always used to do this. Uh, I used to be a teacher, I used to be a nursery teacher in fact. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'd be responsible for between 40 and 80, three and four year olds. There's a reason I don't do it anymore. <laughs> and I remember one day, and this, 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 this blew my mind, this, this child came, came and goes, Mr. Edwin, Mr. Edwin, tug, 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 why didn't we have a snot and other things from mom? Yeah, so yeah, yes, what is it? Because I, I want to paint a picture today. Said, yeah, we can do that. We're perfectly equipped to do painting. We go to the painting area and we go over. And she goes, I want to paint a picture of mummy. Okay, it's up to you. Get the big piece of paper, we get the paint out. You know, yeah, well, there's an apron. Knock yourself out. And she looks at me in contempt and disgust and she goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> I am painting a picture of mummy. I've only got three paints here. As we eventually get out every single paint we have, every colour and hue, they're all there available to her before she'll even begin to think, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's enough. But then I'm thinking, okay, my job is done. And she looks at me again. And, and, and really, the way that only a three year old can really show contempt, she's looking up at me and just disdain. She goes, Mr. Evan, I've only got one brush. <laughs> so she gets the two brushes, one in either hand, and she starts to paint. I mean, it's no step clear time, you know. And she's painting away, and she's just giving it loudly. And uh, I kind of come over, and actually, I'll be honest, the first thing in my head was, how are we going to get this dry before I have to go home? Uh, you know, as a teacher in the room, that was my first thought. My second thought was, oh my goodness, that is horrific. <laughs> yeah, that is the most misshapen picture of a human being I have ever seen, you know? I mean, she's three years old, this girl. She's not exactly talented at art. And, I mean, it was, it was awful. I mean, I'm pretty sure the mummy had six arms. <laughs> you know, like one eye up there, one down there. I mean, even Picasso, to look at this, too far. It was, it was bad, you know. As I'm looking at this monstrosity of a picture, and I'm thinking, Mummy is, is going to be devastated when she sees this and thinks this is how my child sees me. So you take it off, and I put it over the computer, as it were, to try and dry before Mummy arrives. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a good one. And the child goes off in place, and at the end of the day, um, to, to hand over this almost dry painting to Mummy. And the child goes running up, and she goes, I've got a painting of you, Mummy. And I show the monstrosity. <laughs> and mummy cries. And I thought, yep, I would cry too. <laughs> <laughs> Only, <laughs> these are tears of very different. She's actually genuinely tearing up this woman. And, and, and she's delighted. Now, apparently, this apparently what happens. She takes that picture. She doesn't burn it. Hmm. She doesn't bin it. She takes it home and puts it on her fridge. <laughs> she stuck it on her fridge. And when her friends came around, she says, look what my child has done for me. Hmm. Incredible. 
Now the reason I say that story, and the reason I think it is a perfect analogy, and the reason it is my favourite, to try and describe what all of this is about, and what we're all about, is that we are essentially supposed to be this wonderful and perfect reflection of God. We're supposed to imbibe the Torah. We're supposed to let the Word of God go inside of us. We're supposed to have the Holy Spirit changing us. And at the very least, we're supposed to want to. You know, we're supposed to pick up two paintbrushes in our life as we paint that picture of God. You know, we're supposed to use every single colour available to us as we paint that picture of God for the world to see. When they look at us and say, yes, that's a perfect picture of God. Only it's not, is it? You know, it's got like six arms and the eyes are all squint. And it's a monstrosity half the time. And when we get to glory, you know, and, and our lives are all that we have and they're his. And he looks at it, and it's supposed to be a perfect representation of him. He'd be all in his right to tell us to, to, to go away. To scrunch up that life and throw it in the bin. And instead, his smile splits glory, and he says, look at what my child has done for me. The point is, yeah, when I get that, I want that picture to be as good as it can be. <laughs> I mean, I do know, when I see him face to face, I want it to be at least, you know, the best I could have done. However misshapen that is. To live a life with two paintbrushes in my hands, to have really gone for it, to have allowed him to change me to such a degree that at least a close approximation to him. And yet, nonetheless, as I said, he will split glory with his smile and says, look at what my child has done for me. And the point of all of this uh, is that instead of a law which gives us condemnation because we never meet up, we, we never match up, we never get there, we have a God revealed in the text who is a source of inspiration. He says, be like me. I know you can't. Let me help you. Let me change those bits. Let me walk through you in the life when it gets difficult or when it's good. Let's see how close to me that picture can be. All I ask you to do is to come. That's why I think this matters. That's why I think it's important that when every single time you see law and that negative feeling builds up and that condemnation hovers near, you think, no, Torah, God made flesh. God made tangible so I could know him. So when he says, come, Seek me, I can be found. He's telling the truth. Praise God. Thank you.